from Sky News on the right to the ABC on the left. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. On the right of that line lies an evil empire of conservative Christians who deny climate change but believe in trickle-down economics. On the left lies a misguided and confused rabble who are supposed to help the working man but instead fight amongst themselves over identities. Only the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast takes the uncomfortable position of sitting astride the Iron Curtain to take aim at both sides. Only this podcast, and perhaps the bullshit filter, can explain the dire threats facing our civilization. I only wish that they could have traveled back in time to when I was conducting the war effort with the benefit of their wise counsel. The war would have ended three years earlier. I would not have lost the election and I would have invested heavily in technology stocks. <laughs> in any event, I implore you to listen to this very fine podcast. It is your duty. Well, hello and welcome, dear listener, episode 404. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. The Iron Fist. No velvet glove with us tonight. He's in a different location with no internet, so I couldn't make it. But we do have our UK correspondent and tech guy, Joe, coming in all the way from Devon at 10.30 in the morning. Joe, good morning to you. Good morning, all. Yeah, so Joe's there relaxing with a woolen cardigan on and a cup of tea or coffee or something. No, he's got a Coke anyway. But yeah. Yeah, so it's just Joe and myself. If you're in the chat room, say hello like Tanya just did. And, yeah, so isn't it great? comes through loud and clear. Thanks to the wonders of technology, we can continue to do this as a panel discussion. It just means our little group of meerkats are scattered all over the planet. So, well, anything happened in the last seven days that we need to talk about, Joe? I can't think of anything, no. <laughs> oh, well, we'll just call it a bits and off. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, the voice results. It's come through a un, uh, not an unexpected result of uh, rejecting the proposal, 60 to 40, not a single state in favour of it. and That was um, a surprise. Mm, it was shaping up that way early on, wasn't it, that some would yeah. get through. So the ACT, not a state but a territory, passed it and the closest was Victoria but it was still 55-45 against and the state that was most against was Queensland, 68.9 against, only 31.1 in favour. So overall for the country pretty much 60-40, and that was a fairly conclusive result. And boy, oh boy, there's been some sort of... Hand-wringing? Ah, hand-wringing is the word I wanted to use as well, Joe. Boy, advocates for the, for the voice, people on the left, really going to town about what this means. And 
you know, they'd it's all a bunch of racists. About, yes, essentially, dumb racists. Only yeah. dumb racists could possibly have voted for uh, against this proposal, uh, this modest proposal, and and what a terrible state of affairs this is. That's that's pretty much the line coming from advocates for the yes vote. And you need to be careful with a modest proposal. Yeah, well, that's that's their argument. Is it was a modest right. proposal, a generous invitation, a reaching out that was rejected, and that the only possible conclusion is that Australians are racist and don't care, and that's just bullshit. Well, I, I did really see some is. yes advocates saying that it wasn't that Australia was racist. I saw some saying that the yes vote hadn't properly explained their position. And mm-hmm. then some others saying, look, Australians on the whole want everything that the yes camp want. They just think that the proposal put forward was the wrong proposal. It was the wrong way to go about mm-hmm. it. it. It wasn't that the average Australian doesn't want to uh, close the gap. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was just people didn't see the value in what was being proposed. Correct. And I've got some polling by Essential Poll that says mm-hmm. exactly that, which we'll get to uh, a little bit later on, but we'll sort of set the scene before that. So, you know, there's a lot of people saying, what does it mean? And at its most basic level, it just simply means people didn't like the voice. It doesn't mean that they rejected recognition of Indigenous people. There wasn't the option to recognise Indigenous people and reject the voice. So if you just didn't like the voice, you had to reject the entire proposal. And in the same way that the Yes Advocates never dealt with the issue of, you know, show us how this will make a difference. And they never dealt with the issue of, Show us why this isn't a racist proposal. And they skirted around the issue and relied on emotion. And uh, I've got some clips from uh, Michael Mansell to deal with that where they asked people to be emotional about the plight of Indigenous people and somehow make a connection that wasn't there. And, and no, Yeah, the, str- the strongest might- argument about the this is a racist proposal, is, well, the Constitution's already racist, so mm. making it more racist is is fine, mm. which to me is counterintuitive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, prior to Noel Pearson's essay where he raised the voice, the option that was being considered was put in a recognition clause and get rid of the race provisions that were in there already. That would have got up, but not this. So, so there's a lot of talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean, and we'll get into the commentary of that. But, you know, really the Yes Advocates are just um, pretty poor in their commentary because they're, they're arguing something that's not right, that 60% of Australians are dumb racists. And it's really upsetting people because they're saying to Indigenous people, you know, if this doesn't get up, Australians are rejecting you and don't want to help you. And and naturally, 
many Indigenous people are believing that and are now genuinely upset. But that's not the case. So, so these yes advocates who are shitty that they lost have painted a picture that is upsetting people. It's painting a picture of, of a racist, uncaring community that doesn't give a shit about Indigenous people. That's just not true. So it's a disservice to the people that they're supposedly trying to help. Yeah. So. Well, personally, I don't care about Indigenous people. I care about all Australians. Uh, and so don't care what colour your skin is. If you need help, I want mm. to be part of the community that gives help. Mm. Um, and, and sure, ab- absolutely, there are probably a greater proportion of First Nation people that need help rather than white people. But I mm. don't think that they should be treated any differently, any any special thing, because I mm. want everybody to get help. Mm. So this was actually a victory for equality and against racism. But in these Orwellian times of doublespeak, yes, advocates are arguing the opposite. And our media and our public intellectuals demonstrated how poor they are at doing their jobs. And even well-meaning members of the public can't follow points of debate and argue rationally. And we've lost our ability to genuinely debate ideas. And we just put the chat on on the screen so I can see it. So there was a Father Frank Brennan who we've mentioned over the years, Jesuit priest, definitely in favour of a yes vote. He wrote after the referendum a piece that was, you know, sad about what had happened but said accept the result. But I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs of what he said, which is very pertinent. So this is Frank Brennan. This referendum was nothing like the 1967 referendum. It was nothing like the same-sex marriage plebiscite. In 1967... Over 90% of voters supported a proposal put forward uh, urging that Aboriginal people be treated the same as the rest of us. Okay, In 1967, 90% of voters agreed to that proposal, treat Aboriginal people the same as the rest of us. And in the same-sex marriage plebiscite, over over 60% who chose to vote supported a proposal that the civil institution of marriage be made available to all couples, regardless of their sexual orientation. In both these votes, we were voting to treat everyone the same. This referendum was nothing of the sort. In fact, it was probably the exact opposite. On one reading, the 60% no vote was a decision, once again, to treat everyone the same declining to set up a new constitutional entity available only to one group of citizens, namely the first Australians. So accurate portrayal, I think, by Frank Brennan of what actually happened. Just in terms of the voting and the different seats, it was pretty apparent that seats that were won by Greens in the federal sphere or by teal candidates, those were the sort of electorates that voted yes in favour of the voice, just those handful of seats. So I'm in the seat of Ryan, for example, 
and that was won by a Greens candidate in the last federal election and the seat I'm in was one of the few that voted in favour of The Voice. So it's these inner city, well-educated, upper-middle-class areas that were in favour of the yes vote compared to the rest of the country. Pretty sort of, and it didn't really matter, that was in more or less all the states where that was sort of indicative of how the voting went. What happened in Dixon, Joe? (laughs) Strangely enough, it being Peter Dutton's electorate, it was a no. Mm. It was quite interesting. Mm. The early vote trended no. The people who voted at City Hall in Brisbane tended to, or it trended left, it trended yes. So these were uh, people in the Dixon electorate who were working in the city. Yes. Who would vote at the City Hall, yeah. Yes. Yep. And then it was mostly no. There were a couple of, basically as you got closer to the city, it trended yes. The further out from the city, mm. it trended no. But I think Mount Nebo was one of the polling stations, and that was the strongest yes vote at 72%. Mm. Um, Also interesting was the spoiled ballots, whatever they call them, invalid, I think, Mm. Mm. um, which varied between 1% and 3%. And I was – well, I don't know what it normally is. I thought that was quite high, though. Seems high, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, and I, I wonder how many people went, I have to vote, but I don't want to vote, so mm. I'm going to spoil my paper. I've got some quotes from some people just to give some uh, sense of what the left or the, or the yes advocates are saying about the result. Alan Patience, who writes in the John Menadue blog, what the whole debate about an Indigenous voice to Parliament demonstrated with brutal clarity, is that Australia is a morally backward society. It goes on. During the debate, the no side resorted to numerous lies, distortions of the truth and misinformation. Their leaders insisted that we must be respectful of no voters. But how can anyone respect people who have chosen indifference over concern, hostility over love, exclusion over inclusion, cruelty over compassion? Further on, he says... What the whole debate about an Indigenous voice to Parliament demonstrated with brutal clarity is that Australia is a morally backward society. The one glimmer of hope is a new generation of voters and potential leaders is coming. They will help the country to steer clear of the political morass of resentfulness, racism and inhumanity into which Dutton and his ilk would take the country. Look, it's entirely possible to have voted no and to not even have read a single thing that Dutton and his mob said about it and to... The whole point about not enough information, you know, personally, complete bullshit. There was enough information. It was just a bad idea. Um, Well, I I think there were probably three reasons for voting no. One is you're a racist, Mm. and I'm sure that some people were. Mm. The other one was misinformation from the the no vote where they were saying Mm. it would mean this and it would mean that. No, 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 Mm. but also... Constitutionally risky and all that. And also that there was going to be taxes and it was going to be land grabs and all sorts of things. And then finally it was you read it, you thought that it was a bad idea because you couldn't see any particular way that it was actually going to benefit anyone. Yep. We'll get into those reasons. It's in the essential poll. 
Yep. Albanese, in his speech afterwards, said, basically he said, Albanese said, many people have worked all their lives for this and that's just bullshit because... Yeah, it's only a recent thing. That's right. It's just a Noel Pearson thought bubble from 2014 in his quarterly essay titled A Rightful Place, Race, Recognition and a More Complete oh. Commonwealth. Okay, so some, some nine-year-olds have, have worked all their life for this. Yes. So that was complete bullshit to say that people have worked their lives for the voice. It's an invention of Noel Pearson's that was a bad idea. I was watching the ABC coverage. I saw a lot of upper middle class professionals on national television complaining about their disadvantage. I mean, they talked about we are disadvantaged. And I'm looking at these people thinking, you don't look disadvantaged to me. One of them was a professor in a university. I'm like, for fuck's sake, you are. What, what, just describe your disadvantage to me. <sighs> One commentator did talk about focusing on disadvantage rather than race in the future. I'll get to him. That was, uh, that was a guy, Wesley Aird. Right. Just a bit more hand-wringing. Bernard Keane in Crikey wrote, There are no ifs, buts or niceties around this transformational moment. The argument that it was a constitutionally enshrined voice, not recognition, that was rejected doesn't stand up to scrutiny. There is no recognition without a voice because the recognition requested by First Peoples begins with a voice. That's just logic, illogical crap by Bernard Keane. It's perfectly possible to reject... He says, the argument that it was a constitutionally enshrined voice, not recognition that was rejected, doesn't stand up to scrutiny. There is no recognition without a voice because the recognition requested by First Peoples begins with a voice. Anything no, no, else I, is a fake. I think the, the recognition is that they're equal citizens and that happened in 1967. Mm. Yes. And if there was to be a recognition of historical facts of Indigenous people being here first and colonisation by white people, put it in. That I was not... You know, I, I didn't want to reject that, but I wanted to reject the voice. Bernard Keane is wrong. And just because Indigenous people wanted the voice doesn't change that. It's a nonsense. This is the sort of pathetic, illogical, irrational argument that we've had from our media and, and public intellectuals. Well, hang just on. saying black is white and the sun will you know, rise in the West and set in the East because they say it does. Just because you say it doesn't mean it's the case. I, I'm, I'm a middle-aged ma white man. I want a middle-aged white man <laughs> voice to Parliament. Doesn't mean I should get one, but... Mm -hmm. Well, anything else is a fake, he says. One peddled primarily by old white conservatives. Oh, you think yeah. recognition can be imposed on them like invasion, dispossession and genocide was imposed on First Peoples. The no was inarguably a no to recognition. Bullshit. Lots of people would have accepted a recognition. They just didn't accept the voice. That is complete bullshit, Bernard Keane. He goes on. There can be no pretense that this was some sort of accidental result or a failure of politicians or of the yes campaign. There will be inevitable post-mortems of the failure of yes 
But this was a referendum around a single, simple question. There was no complexity, no litany of important policy issues, no personalities, no preferential voting, all of which feature in general elections. This was as simple as democracy gets, and the outcome was as simple as the lopsided result. Australians voted by a large margin to keep pretending First Peoples weren't here before invasion or to not care that they were. That is not what the vote was. The vote was whether there would be a voice. It was not a vote about whether people were here first and it wasn't a vote well, about whether we care. Uh, but, but also whether we care that they were, in what way should we care? Yes. Yes. There are all sorts of ways. We'll get on to it. We're Indigenous right. people themselves agreeing with this. So, all right. Well, the essential report let me see if I can get this up and and look at some of the results from that. Bear with me a second while I get this on the screen. Yeah. There we go. So there's going to be a bunch of graphs and we'll work our way through it as I'm sharing this screen. Um, right, let's move through the national mood, support for the voice to parliament. Main reason to vote no at the referendum. So 42%, it will divide Australia in the Constitution on the basis of race. That's what I've been saying all along. That's what people have been saying all along. And it was never confronted properly by the Yes campaign. So 42% of people said, who said no, their main reason was it will divide Australia in the Constitution on the basis of race. 26% said there was not enough detail on how the voice will work. Personally, I never argued that. I don't think that's the case. That, to me, was not the problem. The problem was it was a bad idea. Now, 18% said it won't make a real difference to the lives of ordinary Indigenous Australians. And I think that's the case. And 14% said it will give Indigenous Australians rights and privileges that other Australians don't have. That is, of course, the special lobbying rights that we've talked about before. So, so that's the reasons why, according to the essential poll, the people who voted no, mostly it's going to divide Australia on the basis of race, not enough detail, it won't make a difference, and it gives rights and privileges to Indigenous Australians that other Australians don't have. Gender-wise... Not much difference in the genders. Men more, sorry, females, surprisingly, more likely to say there was not enough detail, 31%, as opposed to men, 23%. So age-wise, age differences, older people were more likely to say it's racist, less likely to say there was not enough detail, less likely to say it won't make a real difference, but more likely to say that it gives Indigenous people rights and privileges. So older people were more about the racial issues of those who voted no. Younger people were talking about not enough detail and it won't make a difference. And uh, voting intention, the green voters who voted no did so because they said there wasn't enough detail on how it would work. And coalition voters was because of the racism issue. And that's the sort of main items to glean from that. So 
No surprises there, I don't think. That all makes sense to me. What else did we have here? Support for government actions after the referendum. So one of the options is, in the event that the referendum does not succeed, to what extent do you agree or disagree with the following statements? And the one that got the most support was, continue to work with First Nations communities to find solutions to the issue they faced. And whether you, and that was pretty much, well, let me just try and get that in the right, let's do it by voting intention, I think it's going to be the easiest, I actually might do it by gender. Sorry, folks, leave that with me. So, you know, between 60, 65% of people said, yep, continue to work with First Nations communities to find solutions. That's what they want the government to do if the referendum does not succeed. Around the 37, 38% said, start working on a treaty. Same number said start working on a truth-telling commission. About the same number said establish an Aboriginal voice that's not enshrined in the Constitution. And uh, similar numbers around the mid-30s were recognise Aboriginal and Islander people in the Constitution through another referendum without establishing a voice. So majority support for continuing to work to find solutions and very minimal support in the 30s for treaty truth-telling non-constitutional voice type of things. Um, but, yeah, for all of the doomsayers out there saying Australia's racist, then uh, most Australians want the government to find solutions, to close the gap. They just don't want it done via the mechanism of the voice. I'll come back to, if we get time, is Australian, Israel, Palestine type stuff in there. So, Joe, any thoughts on any of that? Any of that surprise you? There was something I was looking at. I can't remember what it was, though. There was something about the Liberals and the Greens, which was a little surprising. But, no, I, I don't think so. I think the vast majority of people recognise that... Indigenous people, especially those in remote communities, are in shocking circumstances and they mm. want that fixed. But again, having a voice in Parliament I don't think is the answer. And mm. I think most people thought that. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Um, Actually, surprising thing was women were slightly less empathetic about finding out what uh, Aboriginals need. Mm. They were 63% as opposed to 65%. Yeah. Yeah. But on the whole, not a great gender difference in this. Oh, no. In these issues. Um, whereas we found with um, the Morrison government, for example, at the last federal election, there were quite distinct gender differences in, in voting intention that, don't appear in this voice polling from Essential Poll. Yeah. Right. I've got some clips from some different people, so we hear some voices. I think I'd mentioned before Michael Mansell, and I might have mentioned his daughter. I saw a clip where she was interviewed. So Michael Mansell and his daughter were both no campaigners, and the reason was that they wanted they saw the voice as being useless and they wanted genuine power in the sense of 
members, uh, Indigenous members in the Senate or they wanted uh, treaty or, or other things and they saw the voices being useless. So here's a little bit of Michael Mansell's daughter. Um, We've had advisory bodies uh, advising government about closing the gap for 14 years now. It's not an issue of the government not having enough advice from Aboriginal people. The issue here is that the government aren't willing to listen to the advice or act on that advice. While many of Tasmania's most powerful current... and Just pausing there. I've been banging on about that for months, years, and people just call me a white fellow who knows nothing, but there's somebody who knows something about it who says exactly the same thing. ...support the voice, influential Aboriginal groups do not. This is not going to see any land returned. This is not going to help incarceration rates. It's not going to support Aboriginal sovereignty or self-determination. So we say no. We want what was stolen from us, and that was certainly not an advisory body. So that was, that was her. Now, let me find another video. This time... I was watching, this is the sort of post-referendum wrap-up on the ABC, and here's Michael Mansell talking about the failure of the Yes campaign. I want to bring in Palawa leader Michael Mansell in Tasmania, in Hobart tonight. Michael, good to see you. Why do you think Australians voted no tonight? This was a, an awful campaign that was run by both the Prime Minister and the Yes campaign. At no stage did they put forward a compelling case as to why an advisory body should be entrenched in the Constitution. Instead, the whole campaign was based on emotion. They were saying, you know, all the ads, you might recall all the ads showing disadvantage, disadvantage, and then somehow stitching that to the advisory body as a solution. And, and at no stage did the Yes campaign explain how an advisory body could do that which the Prime Minister, state governments and the peak organisations couldn't. And in Exactly what I've been saying and asking people to give me an example and nobody ever could. But what, what would I know? Instead of taking on that core issue and explaining to people, here is why this is so good, they just expected people to jump on board emotionally. If you are not a racist, if you're not anti-Aboriginal, you'll vote for this. And, of course, it worked with some people, but obviously not enough. I think he has his finger on the pulse as to what happened. And a bit more from Michael Mansell. Here we go with him. The Liberal and National Party very cleverly allowed two black faces to lead the no campaign and Peter Dutton and David Littleproud were then able to sit behind them and let the two Aboriginal candidates run the no case and it was very effective. And instead of the yes campaign explaining why the arguments from Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine uh, were not valid. People like Marcia Langton and Pat Dodson and other people 
you know, use the old racist tag. This proposal was not about sharing power with Aboriginal people. This was about leaving Aboriginal people on the outside, trying to influence the power brokers. And, of course, it didn't work. And even if it had worked, it wouldn't have made the least bit of difference. And all of those campaigns by the yes, yes people saying, you know, when they raise the expectations of Aboriginal people that your lives will be better, will this young child have a future? I mean, that was pretty underhanded. So they shouldn't particularly point the finger at the no camp. They should look a bit in the mirror and just see how they run their campaign. There we go. Says it all. I was interested in the we want what was stolen from us. Mm -hmm. Well, what was stolen was the whole of Australia. Yeah. Yes, and, and and it was. And it, and it was so from is that white, his ancestors? Is from, from his was, ancestors? It wasn't stolen from him because it was it was an event that had preceded him. But does that mean white people out? I, it was a very nebulous yeah. statement, wasn't it? Yeah. Obviously, I don't agree with everything he says. But it's his daughter, actually. Treaty and reparations. So on the same sort of program on the panel at ABC, they had a guy, Wesley Aird. Now, he's an Indigenous advocate. He's from the Gold Coast Aboriginal community. He's worked in Indigenous affairs for over 25 years. He was in the Army. He was first Indigenous graduate from the Royal Military College at Dundroon. And now, he's obviously a right-winger. Indigenous advocate. I hadn't come across him before until I saw him on this panel, but he had been on q and I subsequently discovered. So here's what he was saying in this panel discussion, and let me find that little clip for you. Wesley Aird is this guy. Coming up. Here we go. And the Director of the Centre for Indigenous Training and former Coalition Advisor during the Howard and Abbott years, Wesley Aird. When I look back on the statistics around the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission all those years ago, there were a lot of Indigenous people that weren't active in that. And the reason they weren't is because they were involved in the economy. Mum and Dad were going to work, kids were going to school. You know, we do have a fairly urban and suburban um, Indigenous population. A lot of Indigenous people are active in the economy. So I think that instead of collectivising Indigenous people and saying, you know, it's us 3% versus you 97%, um, maybe we should fund need and focus on need and address it where we can according to households and their lived experiences and assist people where we, where we can. Um, because I think Indigenous disadvantage is going to be overcome probably one household at a time. Young kids need role models. They need to go to school. You know, we shouldn't lose sight that, that there is a struggle ahead of us, but I think it's going to be a very personal struggle from here on in. Does that argument sound familiar, Joe? Yes. Might have heard it once or twice. Yeah. But, you know, I'm just insensitive white fella who knows fuck all if I say it, but he'll be dismissed because he's a right-winger who used to work uh, in the Howard government in uh, some respect. So he'll be, uh, you know, because of who you are, your argument is shit rather than what is the actual argument. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the racism towards uh, Lydia Thorpe and Jacinta Price was quite mm. impressive. 
because they had the wrong views of a black person and therefore they could be discounted. Yes. Coconuts. Yeah. Yes. Ah. There we go. So I've run through the first notes of this section, Joe, <laughs> of the right. voice. But it really it just really strikes me of a failure of our public intellectuals, a failure of our, our media to deal with the topics that we've dealt with on this podcast. Nobody else has talked about them. And Orwellian doublespeak where the racist, the people promoting racist policy are accusing the people who want to be colourblind of being racist. Well, but also Albanese, if you really wanted to do something, there's a royal commission from, I don't know what it was, 10, 15 years ago that none mm -hmm. of the or, or very few of the recommendations have been implemented. And I think that mm. was Aboriginal deaths in custody. I don't know. There was definitely a royal commission where nothing happened, none of the mm. recommendations. It's like, why not start with that? Mm. Yeah. So, so that's where we're at. Hope I, I hold out no optimism that the debate will improve. I hope that people like Wesley Aird get some sort of better airplay, but I hold out no hope. He'll be accused of being some Warren Mundine or Jacinta Price type of character and that will dismiss his arguments without them being properly examined. But for me, what I heard there was spot on. We should be talking about disadvantage. There's a significant middle class, upper middle class, well-to-do Indigenous population. They're doing fine. Let's look at disadvantage but there we go so that's the wrap of the indigenous issue and good on you in the chat room for the people who have been making their comments and i don't know that there's anything there john says i thought you were a bernard fanboy i, I like bernard Keane on certain things it just goes to show john that when i think somebody's speaking shit i'll say they're speaking shit if they're saying something an argument that's good i'll say it's good it just doesn't matter who they are. It's the argument itself that is important. That was with somebody else recently. Who was that? Um, uh, can't remember. But, yeah, it's the merits of the argument itself that's important, not the person saying it. And too often well, so the yes campaign, be. yeah, too often the yes campaign just will dismiss an argument by dismissing the person proposing it rather than dealing with the issue. And that's where we've got to, where we've got to. Uh, surely we'll take a break without people talking about treaty or truth-telling, Joe, but uh, surely they can tell there's no appetite for treaty. I don't know. I, it depends on how Lydia Thorpe was very much treaty first. Yes. And I, I don't know how much coverage she will get. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I know the right-wing press hates her because there were lots of articles about her behaviour outside of nightclubs. Hmm. So I, I don't know what was going on there, but I think that if the yes vote or the yes campaign 
falls apart, then it may be it may well be people like Lydia Thorpe pushing for the treaty. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I can see them very much being fought tooth and nail by and the like. Yeah. So if you come in late to the podcast, Scott's not here because he's out of town, out of where he normally is and uh, without internet, so he wasn't able to join us. But Joe is uh, now acting not only as our tech guy but as our UK correspondent coming in loud and clear from Devon. So uh, mm-hmm. there we go. Right. Well, Joe, let's have a quick talk about Palestine and Israel and the latest there. Just a couple of things I wanted to mention. Ursula von der Leyen. Ursula von der Leyen. She's some sort of like something to do with the European Commission of some sort. She's always giving speeches and she's on Twitter quoted as saying, Russia's attacks against civilian infrastructure, especially electricity, are war crimes. Cutting off men, women, children of water, electricity and heating with winter coming, these are acts of pure terror and we have to call it as such. So that was her opinion about Russia and its actions against the Ukraine. Meanwhile, turning to Palestine and Israel, she wrote, At the dawn of Shabbat last Saturday, the whole world woke up in horror. The terrorist attack by Hamas is an act of war and we fully support Israel's right to defend itself. Defend itself, yes. Impose punitive action on an entire population, definitely not. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it seems that they've cut off water, electricity. They have. And they've been bombing buildings. Yes. Clearly civilians are going to die and have died. And... Well, that's collateral damage. That's allowable. Yes. But the so, cutting off water and electricity is definitely a no-no. Yes. From the Israeli point of view, and I've spoken to a Jewish person about this, you know, when the Palestinians broke out of Gaza and gunned down uh, women and children and babies, that was seen as being significantly worse than Israel blowing up an entire apartment block where there would be women and babies and children. And they see that as two different, morally different things. Uh, I don't know that it is. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those trolley problems, isn't it? You could argue that one is an intentional act and the other one is indiscriminate. Hmm. So you're aiming for the soldiers and you're accidentally killing civilians rather than deliberately going out and targeting civilians. Yes. But you know you're going to be killing civilians. You know absolutely. You're going to be. Because this is the group, uh, uh, Israel. Unless, had... you, unless you're taking specific steps to mitigate that. Yes. Yes. But you've got people who are elderly, can't get up and down stairs, elevators don't work, you know, or whatever. Uh, from, like it, Hamas are hiding out in tunnels yeah. under the Gaza Strip anyway, so bombing yes. above ground is doing nothing anyway. Yep. And this is the group, Israel, who had no idea that the attack was coming and now suddenly have all the intelligence to say, well, if we bomb this particular building, we know that's a Hamas building. But they didn't have the intelligence before to tell them about the strike that was coming, but suddenly they've got the intelligence to tell them where they're, 
you know, hiding in which building. So hold on both sides and, yeah, is one more morally reprehensible than the other? I'm not so sure. But you will never convince people once they're in one of those camps. It's very, it's impossible for people who are so distraught to sort of overcome the, the, the bias that, that's been forced on them. So, yeah, one person I was speaking to, their, their niece was there and she got to a service station when they were attacked. Everybody in the service station died except for her because she was hiding in a cupboard. Like, what an experience. So Sounds like school shootings in the US. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. We had headlines saying 40 babies murdered by Hamas and cutting the throats of babies in a massacre, and we had Joe Biden more or less confirming that he'd seen pictures, but then they'd be walking back to say, well, actually, there is no proof of that. So but that is in the minds of some people now that... Hamas had murdered babies by cutting off their throats. Although apparently the IDF have now released photos of mutilated children. Mm. So it may not have been that particular incident, but apparently there is now photographic evidence. Mm. Um, Also worth noting, Bellingcat, who are open Mm. source investigative journalists, do have a section on social media misinformation. Mm-hmm. And they were debunking a number of videos going, this is claimed to be from the latest outbreak. Actually, it's from 10 years ago and is in a different part of the world. So there's, there's yep. a very interesting, If I think it's bellingcat.org. Just Google bellingcat, mm-hmm. as in putting a bell on a cat. And they have a Palestine-Israel uh, page that is updated with the various things that they've debunked. Yeah, yeah. What did the White House say? So the thing that gets me about the way the White House operates, Joe, is these spokespersons come out and answer questions on behalf of the administration. Mm -hmm. And how are they supposed to be able to read the mind of the president on a whole range of issues? I just don't know how that's supposed to work where people are asking them, what's the administration's position on this and this and this? And... In any event, one of the spokespeople is Karine Jean-Pierre and at a press briefing on Wednesday, she responded to a question about certain progressive lawmakers calling for a ceasefire and a de-escalation of violence. So she was asked about this proposed ceasefire in the Gaza. And she said, quote, I've seen some of those statements this weekend. We're going to continue to be very clear. We believe they're wrong. We believe they're repugnant. And we believe they're disgraceful. This is is to the idea of a A a ceasefire is repugnant and disgraceful. She goes on, our condemnation belongs squarely with terrorists who have brutally murdered, raped, kidnapped hundreds, hundreds of Israelis. There can be no equivocation about that. There are not two sides here. There are not two sides. So there you go. That's apparently the Biden administration's view on the conflict. Mm. Just finally, Joe. I was listening to something, and I can't remember what. They were talking about the West, sorry, Gaza Strip, 
and apparently Hamas had seized power. So I don't know that they were elected. Yeah, I don't know either. I've also been hearing stories that Israel more or less encouraged Hamas because they didn't want the more reasonable groups there offering reasonable peace settle uh, terms. But I haven't got to the bottom of that yet, but a sort of a Machiavellian type of argument that... Yeah, that- arguments that the Israeli government knew of the attacks and let it happen to galvanise public support. Yes. All these sorts of Machiavellian things that may or may not be true, who knows? So Yeah. There's also yeah. concern that Hezbollah and the Lebanon will join up because they are also, it's a pro-Iranian front. Mm. So they're, they're supported yeah. and funded by Iran. Yeah. And just finally, Joe, just back to the US. So Robert Kennedy mm-hmm. Jr., yes. our favourite anti-vaxxer, <laughs> he's announced that he's going to be running as an independent. So the interesting thing in America, dear listener, is they don't have preferential voting. So if you, if you split say, the, let's assume, for example, that Robert Kennedy Jr. is going to split the Democratic vote. That may not be the case, but just assume that that's the case. So whereas before it might have been, you know, 50-50 and then suddenly maybe 15% or 10% of Democrat voters go to Robert Kennedy, then Trump wins. And they've also got this Cornell other name, who's also looking at running. And this might be an election where there is some significant independence running who might split these votes and open the door to a Trump victory, even though even without that, his last poll showed that he's in the lead. Anything is possible in this upcoming Uh, US election. with Assuming he's picked as the Republican candidate, because if he doesn't, then he'll run as an independent which will yes. split the Republican vote. Yes. So there's no opportunity for preferential voting where you, as we do have here. Nope. So that is going to make that election really interesting as these independent candidates appear. And someone like Robert Kennedy Jr., is he going to take Democratic votes or is he going to take Republican votes because he's such a weird character on some of his policies? Anything's possible. I'm not sure. But, uh, yes, I mean, the anti-vax actually is a left-wing thing, historically. Yep. It was very much a rich parent worried about their poor little babies and autism. Hippie flower child um, sort of. Absolutely. Thing. And that, and that yeah, tended to be much more left-leaning. Yeah, yep. it, it was only COVID that it really started to become a right-wing thing. Yes, John in the chat room says the Pep podcast did a really good deep dive on RK Jr. His popularity will probably fall off a cliff, says John. Okay. Watley the Wizard says almost certainly the Israeli government knew about it beforehand. Um, John also says Hamas were elected. Um, no, yeah. no, he says Hummus was elected. Yeah, <laughs> Hummus, yes. Hey, so yeah, that's that. Well, look. It's a quick episode. We don't have Scott here. And uh, in the aftermath of the voice referendum, 
I think that's enough for an episode. People over there, Joe, as our UK correspondent, what's happening mm-hmm. on the ground in the UK? What do we need to know? What do they, anybody over there think that Australia is now a bunch of racist well, assholes I, as a result did, or they don't even know about it? Did see a news thing of what was the international coverage. And so mm-hmm. it, it really was a, a damp squib. There wasn't much international coverage and most of it just said the referendum failed. And I think the people who were trying to collate all of that were making an argument that Australia was being seen as racist again. But I didn't mm. I, I didn't see from the headlines I saw, I didn't read it as painting a particularly bad picture. Yeah. But yeah. really the rest of the world doesn't care about Australia. Yeah. I, I know it's it's hard to hear, but that's the, the brutal truth. It, yeah, it's so absolutely. far away that people just don't pay attention. Yep. In They've the chat room, Watley worries. Wizard said, Watley said, this is because you, because um, John wrote Hummus, rather. <laughs> Watley says, so Israel went to war with Hummus. Surely Tavuli would get in on the action. <laughs> I, I thought Watley was just just joking. I wasn't picking on your spelling. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, there we go. That's a big event in Australian political history and our social and our little study society course that we've got here on the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week with something. We'll see what happens. Talk to you then. Bye for now. And it's a good night from him. Yeah, I run fifth and I vibe with love. Real shit.